From the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond, you're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. I'd like to welcome you back to Trauma ICU Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. I'm an associate professor of clinical surgery at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and trauma surgeon slash medical director of the Trauma Surgical ICU here at Harbor UCLA Medical Center in South Los Angeles. I am really excited to get season two of Trauma ICU Rounds kicked off, and I want to thank you for joining us and making this podcast such a success. The underlying theme for this season is going to be acute care surgery, and that's not to say that we're going to focus specifically on emergency general surgery. In fact, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have Dr. Walt Biffle join us to talk about blunt cerebral vascular injury, and the topic of today's rounds, in fact, is probably more of a trauma topic than it is ACS. Today on rounds, we're discussing a clinical condition that I've personally been burnt by and that I've seen fool many, many others, either because the diagnosis wasn't entertained, or if it was, there were delays either in regards to making a definitive diagnosis due to a misunderstanding of the pathophysiology or usefulness or reliance on the physical exam. And that condition is acute extremity compartment syndrome. And this truly is an acute surgical emergency. And early diagnosis really does require a really high index of suspicion. If there's one point I want you to walk away from rounds today, it's that if you suspect it, if you think that a patient could potentially have acute extremity compartment syndrome, do something about it. That do may be taking an actual intracompartmental pressure check or simply performing fasciotomies. But if you think someone's got it, do something about it. If you don't, bad things are bound to happen. This includes things like loss of limb function, permanent disability, deformity, contractures, multiple organ dysfunction syndrome, the development of rhabdomyolysis, acute kidney injury, and we've seen instances of death. On that happy note, in terms of objectives, by the end of rounds, you should be able to, number one, describe the pathophysiology of acute extremity compartment syndrome. Number two, recognize risk factors and key clinical features of compartment syndrome, namely the six Ps. And we'll also talk about some of the major limitations of the six Ps mnemonic for compartment syndrome. Number three, understand how to measure and interpret compartment pressures. And the big focus here is on the differential pressure. That's the diastolic minus the intracompartmental pressure. And finally, objective number four, discuss management considerations and pitfalls when it comes to therapy, namely fasciotomy. So when we think of extremity compartment syndrome, I think it helps to think about compartment syndrome affecting other parts of the body, including, for example, the head, chest, or abdomen. And an important point to bear in mind is that extremity compartment syndrome can develop in any part of the extremity, including the deltoids, as well as buttocks or gluteal compartments. 
With that said, the lower extremity or leg specifically is by far the most commonly affected anatomic location for this disease process, with the anterior and lateral compartments being most commonly affected. So similar to patients with uh, intracranial hypertension or elevated ICP, intracranial pressure, which when you think about it is a compartment syndrome of the head insofar as the contents of the head, namely the brain, CSF, and blood, are limited by the rigid bony confines of the skull. Patients can develop extremity compartment syndrome when the pressure is within one of the fascial envelopes in the extremities increases such that flow is compromised, resulting in tissue hypoxia and eventually, if untreated, myonecrosis. Whereas patients with traumatic brain injury and intracranial hypertension with elevated ICPs, the ICPs are due to an increase in brain parenchymal edema, CSF, or blood, and extremity compartment syndrome, injury of an extremity, may result in increased muscle swelling and edema due to soft tissue, bony injury, as well as bleeding. In both scenarios, if left unchecked, bad things are going to happen. In the former case, patients will herniate and die. In the case of extremity compartment syndrome, however, there's no out or frame and magnum through which the contents of the compartment can herniate, and therefore the muscles and nerves will eventually also progress to irreversible tissue and cell death. Which brings up another interesting point. Oftentimes, compartment syndromes in the extremity are associated or we associate them with fractures, but up to a third of patients may not have a fracture. And if they do have a fracture, even if it's an open fracture, so there is a little out for some of that pressure to decompress, it's not enough to prevent development and ongoing progression of tissue ischemia. When we think about the pathophysiology, the most widely accepted hypothesis for the pathophysiology of acute extremity compartment syndrome is known as the arteriovenous pressure gradient theory. And to take us back to sort of year one, two physiology, you'll recall that Starling's hypothesis states that fluid movement due to filtration across the wall of a capillary is dependent on the balance between the hydrostatic pressure gradient and the oncotic pressure gradient across the capillary. And ignoring the concept of filtration coefficient, remember that the hydrostatic pressure or the net movement of fluid from the capillary or intravascular space to the interstitial space or vice versa is based on the two key variables. Number one, the pressures within the capillary and surrounding interstitium. And number two, the colloid osmotic pressure in the capillary and surrounding interstitium. So, Capillary hydrostatic pressure falls as you go from the beginning of the capillary near the arteriolar side to the venous end, and the driving pressure will decrease and typically actually becomes negative, if you'll recall, along the length of the capillary, whereas the other startling forces remain constant. So when you have an injury to the tissues within a given compartment, a few things may happen. Number one, The injury causes pre-capillary vasodilation in the arterial system. 
Number two, this is accompanied by collapsing venules and increased permeability. And number three, this ultimately results in increased net filtration or movement out of the capillary into the interstitium with a resultant increase in the interstitial pressures, which normally are less than 10 millimeters mercury. So the increased compartment pressure essentially restricts local tissue perfusion by reducing the arteriovenous pressure gradient. And if prolonged, will result in cellular hypoxia, anoxia, leading to damage, first to nerves and eventually to muscle tissues. And this results in a positive feedback loop or vicious cycle whereby capillary flow deteriorates or diminishes owing to an increase in the compartment pressure, which further reduces tissue perfusion further enhances blood vessel permeability and increasing the internal pressure. So another way of thinking about this is when someone is developing compartment syndrome, it's almost like they've got a a venous tourniquet on. And as the pressures in that compartment begin to build, particularly when they come within 10 to 30 millimeters mercury of diastolic pressure, muscle oxygenation decreases as tissue perfusion pressures approach mean arterial pressure. So extremity compartment syndrome in its, in its, at its core or in a nutshell develops based upon both compartmental and systemic blood pressures, which is why we never just look at absolute compartmental pressures. You really want to look at this relative to what's happening in the remainder of the cardiovascular system with regards to driving pressures. Now, when it comes to risk factors for the development of acute extremity compartment syndrome, there are numerous risk factors and causes which most commonly occur following direct trauma. And this is what we typically refer to as primary extremity compartment syndrome. In primary compartment syndrome, there has been a direct limb-related injury such as a severe crush, fall, direct blows, burns, penetrating injuries, and in other cases, tissue ischemia and reperfusion injury, as may occur, for example, in a patient with an acute arterial occlusion, whether that's due to an acute arterial embolus or injury. We can also see compartment syndrome developing in the extremities in patients who have received high-pressure injections of contrast, following animal bites and stings or evanimations, as well as in patients with prolonged immobilization. And the classic patient here is something that we see almost every other month, but a patient is high on meth or heroin or super intoxicated. They kind of lay down on the ground and they don't move for hours on end. And then they present to our emergency room with very full compartments in their extremities and or buttocks and almost sometimes looks like they've got burns. But in fact, this is pressure-related ischemia and necrosis of the soft tissues. And so this has to be recognized. Again, many of these patients are going to have an altered sensorium or mental status. So they're not going to be able to convey that they're having severe pain for example, out of proportion to the exam findings. So again, you must have a high index of suspicion. 
There are a host of other causes of what's known as secondary compartment syndrome, and this includes things like hematologic etiologies. We already talked about ischemic reperfusion injury, but uh, thrombosis, bleeding disorders or coagulopathies, as well as spontaneous hemorrhage uh, may result in compartment syndrome. Patients on anticoagulation who have a nephrotic syndrome, we've talked about toxins. And the other thing to bear in mind is patients will sometimes get or receive massive resuscitation with crystalloids. And we've seen patients who have come in with a primary intra-abdominal pathology, for example, uh, that end up having abdominal compartment syndrome, come in, are hypovolemic, they get an ischemic reperfusion injury, subsequently receive liters and liters of crystalloids, and then develop bilateral lower extremity compartment syndrome. The other patient population that we see particularly here at our county hospital are patients with gas or group A strep infections of the muscles or clostridial myonecrosis, so patients with an NSTI or necrotizing soft tissue infection. And then, of course, uh, related to the ischemic reperfusion injury, we have patients who are undergoing revascularizations. The other big one is patients who uh, are casted or have circumferential wraps or bandages. Uh, These, we've seen, rarely result in extremity compartment syndrome. And again, the diagnosis here may be delayed because sometimes you don't have access to their pulses. But the point here that I would really emphasize is that pulselessness is the last finding. And so by the time that happens, the horse has left the barn. So you want to identify these patients early and the two earliest symptoms or signs of extremity compartment syndrome are pain out of proportion or pain with passive movement of the extremity and paresthesias. So as we've already discussed, when it comes to the diagnosis, one of the key take-home points from today's podcast is you really have to have a high index of suspicion. And we frequently discuss the six Ps or the five Ps, depending on whether or not you want to include poikilothermia in the mix. But the fact of the matter is that these symptoms and signs are highly variable. As you'll recall, the six Ps are pain out of proportion to the physical exam and or with passive motion paresthesias, pallor, paralysis, poikilothermia, and pulselessness. Now, pain is by far the first and most important sign and indicator that there's a problem with said extremity. In addition to pain out of proportion and pain on passive stretching of the affected muscles, I would also add to that pain that's unresponsive to adequate analgesia. And, you know, sometimes patients can't communicate how much pain they're in, which is why it makes it really difficult. But if you have a patient who's awake, alert, and they're telling you that they've got severe pain in their extremity, again, oftentimes there aren't any other remarkable findings. So please do take that uh, complaint seriously. And if the potential diagnosis of extremity compartment syndrome comes to mind, do something. Okay, it's at that point you're going to do a compartment check or potentially take that patient for fasciotomy. And remember that symptoms and signs evolve progressively over time. And so patients may not have a lot of pain initially and they're getting analgesia and two or three hours later, they're really complaining of severe pain. So you have to take these complaints seriously. Now, the presence of paresthesias is also concerning 
and it usually occurs before the remainder of the peas and may herald the presence of nerve tissue hypoxia. In the leg, this classically manifests as altered sensation between the first two toes or the first web space, and this finding is suggestive of deep perineal nerve ischemia due to a compartment syndrome of the anterior compartment of the leg where the deep perineal nerve lives. Remember, the absence of these symptoms and signs are not reassuring. I repeat, the absence of these symptoms and signs are not reassuring. And these have been demonstrated time and time again to be highly insensitive but highly specific. So in short, the predictive value of the physical exam for diagnosing extremity compartment syndrome is poor. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen not just residents, but other staff members kind of come along to a polytrauma patient with extremity fractures with concerns for compartment syndrome, and they kind of squeeze and mash on the leg and kind of turn away and, ugh, there's no compartment syndrome here. Absolutely ridiculous. All right, that is not the way to go. And remember when it comes to this five or six P's mnemonics, this is really more often in reference to signs of acute arterial ischemia rather than acute extremity compartment syndrome. Palpating the tenseness of that muscle compartment, it's so commonly performed. I do it. I feel that as well. But it's unreliable as an indicator for a compartment syndrome. Additionally, some compartments aren't even evaluable by physical exam. For example, the deep posterior compartment of the leg. And as I've already mentioned, but I'm going to mention it again because I think this is really, really important, complicating matters among injured patients is that there are so many other distracting variables that will result in an unreliable exam, whether that's a concurrent head injury or TBI, depressed or altered mental status or encephalopathy, inability to communicate or understand what you're asking, or concomitant nerve injury. There was a a great study published in 2010 in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery with authors Schuler and Dietz, in which they looked at uh, residents, orthopedic residents, and surgery orthopedic surgery attendings' ability to manually detect isolated elevations in leg intercompartmental pressures. And this was done at a level one trauma center using fresh cadaver legs that they actually infused with crystalloids to two different pressure Uh, thresholds, sort of 20 to 40, which were the negative controls versus 60 to 80, considered to be consistent with a compartment syndrome. And they asked several questions, you know, they wanted the, the test subjects to tell them, is there compartment syndrome? If yes, which compartment? And then describe your exam, soft, compressible, or firm. And across all the study subjects from the junior to senior residents and attending surgeons, the test characteristics of palpation were just horrendous. I mean, sensitivities were in the low to mid 20%, specificity somewhere between 36 to 70%, with really poor positive and negative predictive value. So I think the take home from this really interesting study is that manual detection of compartment firmness as an indicator to perform a fasciotomy or not is absolute garbage. 
So then that begs the question, if the clinical diagnosis is, let's say, equivocal, how do we figure out what the actual intracompartmental tissue pressure is? And there are several techniques that have been described uh, by which we can obtain either absolute pressure values or calculate the pressure differential. And one way is to insert an arterial line and transduce it, similar to how we would transduce an A-line in the ICU. But the vast majority of patients are going to be seen in the ER. And so there, depending on where they've been triaged and depending on your local practices, you may not have access to the arterial pressure uh, module. So in the past, we would use what was known as a striker compartment pressure monitor. And striker no longer makes this pressure monitor, and so they may be hard to find. So we've now moved towards using the compass device, and it's a very easy setup to do. I think when it comes to a couple of key points, if you're worried, let's say, about the leg... One key point here is to make sure that you assess all four compartments. You don't want to just assess one because what's happening in the anterior compartment, for example, is not reflective at all of what may be happening in the deep posterior compartment. If patients are awake, I typically like to inject lidocaine uh, before inserting the pressure needle. And the setup is fairly simple. Essentially, you have a, a manometer which reads out a digital reading of the intracompartmental pressure, a needle, and then a syringe that's pre-filled with saline. And and prior to actually inserting the needle, you want to make sure that you have one continuous column of saline. So you're just going to inject a little bit so that there's no air within the system. And then you're going to advance the needle into the suspected compartment, ideally parallel to the floor, give it a couple of minutes to calibrate, and then read out the number. And typically, absolute pressures greater than 30 millimeters of mercury have been thought to be an indication for impaired tissue perfusion. Um, And this may vary depending on if we're talking about an adult uh, versus child. But I think the vast majority of folks, as well as researchers, uh, have really moved towards the differential pressure, which is the diastolic pressure minus the intracompartmental pressure. And this is something that uh, authors like McQueen and Court Brown have written extensively about. And the proposed threshold here is 30 millimeters of mercury. So at this point, I want to refer you to the website, traumaicurounds.com, as well as the show notes, where we'll have a link to a video where we demonstrate how we use this compass device to perform a compartment check in the lower extremity. I think the only other point I would mention is that, again, as we've already alluded to, compartment syndrome is dynamic. And so folks sometimes will do continuous intracompartmental checks. I, I don't find that those are particularly helpful. But if you're concerned, you might want to do serial or interval compartment checks to make sure that the syndrome is not evolving. And we've certainly seen that happen. So assuming that the history, risk factors, clinical exam, and objective findings from an intracompartmental check in some combination thereof are positive, and you believe and think and have diagnosed a patient with compartment syndrome, what is the treatment? As we said earlier, the treatment is wide, long fasciotomies. Again, the most commonly affected 
uh, extremity is going to be the lower extremity, specifically the leg. And this is where we have four compartments. We've already said that the anterior and lateral are the most commonly affected. But when it comes to fasciotomy, the anterior and deep posterior are the most commonly missed. And so when we perform fasciotomies, and here at Harbor, the trauma service does fasciotomies everywhere. It doesn't matter if it's the buttocks, the deltoid, the hand, we do all the things. And so with the lower extremity, uh, I always remember from my American College of Surgeons asset training, thumb, posterior, tibia, in terms of where you're going to make your incision, finger, front, fibula. And that's where you're going to make your incisions for the anterior and lateral compartment. Um, Having done many, many, many of these, I got to say it's easy to miss the anterior compartment because oftentimes that uh, lateral incision, it's made really lateral because it's kind of hard to feel the fibula, especially in a patient who's got a swollen uh, extremity. Whereas, you know, the tibia medially is really easy to feel. And so to get into the superficial posterior space is quite easy. So again, in terms of key principles, when you're opening up the compartments, I open them up really far and really wide. We've had instances where patients have gone for quote unquote fasciotomies and uh, continued to progress in terms of uh, muscle ischemia and necrosis because the fasciotomies weren't large enough. And in the lower extremity, folks have talked about doing a single incision fasciotomy and releasing all four compartments. Um, Mainly, I think that comes from the vascular folks. For us here in trauma, patients get two incisions and four compartment release. At the time that you do the fasciotomy, you definitely want to be assessing for muscle viability. And if muscle is dead, you should debride it at that time. And if you'll notice what we're talking about right now, we're really talking about therapeutic fasciotomy. So patients that we've diagnosed with extremity compartment syndrome in whom we perform fasciotomies therapeutically. There are times when we'll perform fasciotomies prophylactically. And this typically refers to the patient coming in with an acute arterial injury. And the classic example here is the patient with a popliteal artery injury, either due to a posterior knee dislocation, or maybe they have a penetrating injury. And there are certain risk factors that will place a patient at risk for compartment syndrome, even if they don't have it, and even if you've reestablished flow. And this includes things like a prolonged ischemic time, typically greater than six hours hours. Remember, you can get reversible neural ischemia starting at around the four-hour mark. By the time you get to six hours, that nerve injury will typically be irreversible, and that's also the time, six hours of warm ischemic time, that muscle will start to die as well. So if there's been prolonged ischemic time, these patients will get prophylactic fasciotomies, patients who have combined arterial and venous injuries, patients who are hemodynamically unstable or in shock, patients with crush or severe soft tissue injuries. So there's a number of reasons why we might perform prophylactic fasciotomies. And I make this distinction because oftentimes the timing of closure, as well as the need for multiple subsequent takebacks, differs if someone gets a therapeutic fasciotomy with dead muscle versus prophylactic fasciotomy because we're being cautious. Uh, You know, in the past, that's where I've really been burnt is just not performing those prophylactic fasciotomies. 
And my threshold these days is just so low. The morbidity and complications of performing a fasciotomy that might not subsequently be needed is so low. And you can get these fasciotomy incisions closed over the next 48 to 72 hours, depending on what else is happening with the patient, the resuscitation requirements, etc. Now, if a patient goes for a therapeutic fasciotomy and you are debriding muscle, I wouldn't be in too much of a rush to get those fasciotomy sites closed. These patients oftentimes will require subsequent repeat debridements, and so I would only consider closure uh, once we've gotten source control. In terms of wound care and post-operative considerations, I never put a vac on these patients at the first um, operation or at the time of the fasciotomy. Some folks like to get really creative and aesthetic and put on the Roman sandal looping vessel thing. Um, when I do a fasciotomy, I want to make sure that the skin, the fascia, everything is completely open because these extremities may continue to swell. So I just leave them like that, put on some wet to dries, and then bring them back within 24 to 48 hours. Usually we can get these patients closed. If not, skin grafts are always an option. Now, before we end the episode, I do want to talk a little bit about rhabdomyolysis and definitely keep an eye out for our awesome episode coming up with Kidney Boy, Dr. Joel Toff. And we'll talk a little bit more about the role of renal replacement therapy and management of rhabdomyolysis. But this certainly can be a life-threatening complication of extremity compartment syndrome and patients may present in florid rhabdo with subsequent AKI. We know from a great study with uh, CVR Brown back at USC from a while back that typically when we see CKs or CPKs, which are an indication of uh, muscle necrosis, uh, greater than five to 10,000, the risk for acute renal failure defined as a creatinine greater than two or need for dialysis increases. So with the, the new definitions and staging systems for AKI, which didn't exist when that study was put out, and that will be in the show notes. Um, who knows, the threshold may actually be lower. One key point about CKs, though, you don't want to use this as a diagnostic criteria, all right? CKs become elevated when muscle is injured, already ischemic, and potentially dying. So if you wait for the CKs to be 10, 15, 20, 80,000, you're way behind the eight ball. So in terms of key take-home points when it comes to extremity compartment syndrome, number one, you have to have a high index of suspicion, particularly in patients who are non-communicative, unresponsive, but have the right risk factors and physical exam findings. Again, the number one exam finding is going to be pain out of proportion, followed closely thereafter by paresthesias. And so if patients have those findings, particularly pain out of proportion that's not responsive to adequate analgesia, you got to be thinking extremity compartment syndrome. If you think it, do something about it. Either get objective confirmation that the intracompartmental pressures are elevated by performing an intracompartmental pressure measurement or take the patient for fasciotomy. We've just seen too many of these go uh, undiagnosed or with a delayed diagnosis. And then when it comes to therapy, you want to make sure those fasciotomies are broad and wide and that you're in all compartments. 
want to thank you so much for tuning in today. And I'm, again, really excited about the launch of season two. We've got a lineup, and I kind of talked about this in the trailer for the show, of amazing guest professors that'll be joining us. If you like what you're hearing and you like what you're listening to, please do share that with us and the world. You can leave us uh, a nice rating and some comments at iTunes or Spotify or wherever you download your podcasts. Until next time, stay safe, keep reading, take care of yourselves and one another.